Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. Our guest today is Alessandro Gavasa, who is Professor of Economics at the London School of Economics and Research Fellow of the Center for Economic Policy Research. He's an applied economist with main interest in industrial organization. His research focuses on the role of frictions in markets. Welcome, Alessandro. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here with you today. Yeah, thanks for doing this on a Sunday. Um, and uh, I have a few of your working papers. I thought we can start with uh, mortgage pricing and monetary policy. Uh, you say this paper provides novel evidence on lenders' mortgage pricing and how central bank policies affected it. Using the universe of mortgages, uh, mortgages originated in the UK, uh, you say we show that lenders seek to segment the market by offering two part tariffs composed of interest rates and origination fees. And that during recent periods of unconventional monetary policy, such as the UK's funding for lending scheme, lenders decreased interest rates and increased origination fees. So I'm not familiar with uh, the funding for lending scheme. Could you talk a bit about that? What exactly is that? Absolutely. Um, you may remember a few years ago uh, during the European uh, sovereign debt crisis, um, there was uh, some turmoil in wholesale markets uh, and um, in particular, uh, bond sovereign bond uh, in Europe um, experienced a spike in their in, in the interest rate, in particular of peripheral countries. Um, so central banks in Europe, uh, the European Central Bank, uh, most notably, but also the Bank of England, uh, started uh, new monetary policy operations. Uh, that allowed lenders to access funding directly from the central bank. Uh, so traditionally, the central bank is the lender of last resort. Uh, and since the European sovereign debt crisis, instead, many uh, banks uh, in the euro area in particular 
have been heavily funded uh, by the, for example, the European Central Bank. In the United Kingdom, uh, the Bank of England uh, started similar facilities, although they are less relevant now uh, for banks relative uh, to how important they are in the Eurozone area. So we study, yeah. Yeah, so, so this was part of the COVID shock? No, I'm talking about um, uh, several years ago. So the European sovereign debt crisis was around 2013. Uh, and so the facilities that we are talking about uh, are around uh, that, mm, that time. That time, okay. And so the idea here is that uh, central banks provide uh, liquidity, uh, more liquidity for the lenders, with expectation that that money gets into gets into consumers' hands uh, more easily. So it, was that the idea? Yes, uh, the idea was that uh, funding costs of banks uh, were particularly elevated at the time uh, because of the European sovereign debt crisis. Uh, so, uh, of course, uh, sovereign debt uh, was the prices of uh, sovereign debt was uh, was affected, but also wholesale uh, funding uh, was heavily influenced as well. Therefore, to reduce uh, the cost uh, for lenders. Uh, the central bank started new facilities in which they were offering loans uh, to banks. And so um, interest rates and origination fees, interest rates, uh, some of the interest rates we can observe in the market, origination fees is sort of cloudy <laughs> in, in the US. I think they call it points or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and every lender has, you know, their own ways of doing this. So. Um, is it so they're using these two levers to, to really get to the consumer, right? Because um, different people may even understand these two factors differently, right? Is that one of the issues? Yes, absolutely. So uh, um, there are always uh, complicated calculations when you are uh, taking up a mortgage. Uh, and so um, these different uh, price uh, components uh, matter for consumers uh, and it's not always straightforward to add them up uh, because some of these components are variable. So the interest rate uh, essentially uh, multiplies your loan size, uh, whereas um, there are some fixed components uh, such as the fees. And so adding variable uh, parts and fixed parts is not straightforward sometimes, in particular for consumers who don't have uh, great financial sophistication. So um, isn't this some sort of a standardized uh, way of looking at this? I, I, I think in the US, there is some way that they say, you know, they can put everything together into a singular number. And, and that is more easily digested. Um, is there anything like that in, in the UK? Yes, absolutely. So um, the APR uh, is a way of summarizing different uh, fees and different interest rates. Uh, although uh, very often the interest rate is a lot more salient for consumers relative to the APR. Okay, so very often, uh, let's say lenders advertise the APR uh, sorry, the interest rate uh, and the APR exactly because uh, varies across consumers depending on 
the size of the mortgage uh, is less easy to advertise to a broad uh, population. But and, um, um, sorry, Alessandro, I would imagine there's tax effects here too, right? So the consumer may have some optionality here in terms of pushing um, payments to certain certain periods of time where uh, they may have a favorable tax treatment. That is also an issue here, right? Okay, in the United States, uh, uh, interest payment is tax deductible, uh, whereas in the United Kingdom is not. So some uh, taxation considerations uh, may be less relevant for the UK market relative to the UI, to the US market. Okay, and so so what's your conclusion here, uh, or what are your observations here? So unconventional monetary policy, lenders were given almost easy money. Uh, and they take that and they use it in different ways, right? So segmentation of the market. Could you talk a bit about what what all things you observed there? Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> so um, we find that these uh, funding for lending scheme, which uh, are the central bank uh, operations that the Bank of England started uh, uh, during the European sovereign debt crisis, uh, were quite effective at reducing the funding cost of lenders. Uh, lenders, because their funding costs were now lower because of the central bank facilities, reduced the interest rate that they charge on new mortgages. Uh, and so um, consumers benefited from the decrease in interest rates that they were paying. But at the same time, uh, we do find that uh, lenders charge higher uh, mortgage fees. Uh, so the benefit to the consumer was partially offset by the fact that lenders were able to capture through fees uh, some of the benefits of the decreasing costs uh, that they uh, experienced. Is it a regulatory uh, issue, meaning interest rates are easily observed, maybe origination fees can be hidden in different ways? Yeah, was that the reason they sort of shifted? I mean, as I said, uh, certainly when in the United Kingdom lenders advertise mortgage rates, uh, uh, there is a lot of focus on the interest rate, whereas the fees, for example, in the uh, ads uh, are a lot less uh, salient. If you go on a website of uh, a lender in the United Kingdom, uh, the fees are usually quite uh, clearly disclosed. Okay. Uh, but again, uh, we know that in many of these uh, um, consumer finance decisions, uh, consumers uh, might not fully understand all the features of a product. Uh, and so in particular, they might not fully uh, appreciate uh, that the, in addition to interest rates, they may have to pay uh, origination fees and these origination fees vary across uh, mortgages, across lenders, and so uh, they may be less salient than interest rates. And as a result, uh, uh, lenders may have incentives uh, to advertise low interest rates, uh, but at the same time try to uh, gain a little bit more profits uh, by charging slightly higher in, uh, origination fees. It's uh, it's also a question of financial flexibility, right, from the consumer's perspective, because origination fees is sort of a lump sum fixed amount upfront payment that they're making. I would imagine only a only a cohort of people 
uh, would be able to do that, right? So is that how they're differentiating the market? I mean, uh, segmenting the market, I should say. Um, certainly uh, higher income individuals, uh, because they take larger loans, uh, benefit from paying these uh, origination fees up front uh, with the idea of getting a lower interest rate. Uh, and so uh, that's the sense in which uh, these pricing uh, with origination fees and uh, interest rates uh, allows to segment the market between uh, some consumers who have larger mortgage loans and some other consumers who might have smaller loans who may prefer instead uh, a lower origination fee but a slightly higher interest rate. And so that's the segmentation that we are uh, really studying in our paper because um, in the United Kingdom, uh, pricing of mortgages is a little bit different uh, from uh, the way it is done in the United States in that uh, there is no personalized pricing. So there are essentially posted prices. So lenders uh, set a menu of uh, interest rates and fees and consumers choose uh, between these uh, different options available to them across lenders and within a specific lender. And uh, therefore, consumers who might have larger loans, uh, so they want to buy a bigger house uh, and they need you know, more money, uh, they may prefer lower interest rates, but uh, pay an upfront fee, uh, whereas consumers who are buying perhaps a smaller house uh, require a smaller loan and therefore they may prefer uh, just a slightly higher interest rate, but pay no fee. Yeah, so if I understand this correctly, Alessandro, the insight in the paper, if I understand this correctly, is that it's from a policy perspective, uh, instinctually one could say fees are bad, you should just get rid of fees um, instinctually. But what you're finding is that that is not a good policy, right? Having fees uh, allows more flexibility, more segmentation, better product design, and all of that. So could you talk about, you know, uh, I remember reading uh, both consumer surplus and uh, lenders' profits increased uh, from this process. So what is the mechanism there? Yes. Well, the idea is very similar to uh, traditional price discrimination. So uh, when a seller price discriminates across uh, among heterogeneous uh, consumers, this, just by the fact that they are price discriminating, uh, it is are quite plausible that price discrimination benefits uh, sellers. Otherwise, they would not do it. Uh, but the traditional question in, in economics, and in particular in industrial organization, is whether price discrimination benefits uh, buyers as well, benefits consumers as well. Uh, and here we do find that uh, price discrimination benefits consumers as well. So if uh, for whatever reason, let's say the regulator uh, does not allow lenders uh, to price discriminate across these heterogeneous consumers, uh, uniform uh, pricing would hurt some type of consumers. And the reduction in consumer surplus of these consumers uh, is the main first order effects that reduces 
aggregate consumer surplus in the market. So the fact that there is a group of consumers that would reduce the quantity that they borrow uh, uh, reduces consumer surplus uh, in this uh, in this market. So if there are two factors in the in the design of the product, interest rate and origination fees, um, I would imagine the lender would have sort of the same net present value computation when when they design different products. So from a lender's perspective, NPV of the different products, I, I'm just uh, speculating, uh, are roughly the same. And if that were that were true, then how will the what how how does the consumer benefit from that? Yeah, so because the consumers are different. So imagine just two individuals. Imagine uh, you and me in the market, and we are facing just one lender. Uh, you are um, uh, richer than me, uh, and you're going to borrow more than me. Uh, I am. I have a lower income than you. I'm going to borrow less than you. Uh, and so uh, there is a benefit uh, for the lender to price discriminate between you who are going to have a, a large loan and me who are going to have a small loan. OK, if the lender cannot price discriminate between me and you, OK, the lender is going to charge the same interest rate to me and you. And you are going to have a smaller loan. OK, I'm going to have perhaps a slightly larger loan, but the decrease in your loan OK, is larger than the increase in my loan. Therefore, the quantity of lending goes down. And as a result, also your surplus goes down uh, by more than my surplus goes up. And as a result, when we aggregate our consumers, in this case, just me and you, uh, the overall effect is that your decreasing surplus is the dominant effect in the market, and therefore aggregate consumer surplus goes down. So if I understand this correctly, Alessandro, so what you're seeing is that disparate consumers with uh, varying constraints, if given the same product, um, will have less consumption, really. I mean, some of them cannot do it. Some of them can easily do it. Um, but if if there are a, a plethora of different products with different features, then there are there are more choices in the market, and that might design into the needs of uh, different customers with the varying constraints, right? Varying financial constraints, perhaps. That's right. So that's absolutely right. Is all predicated on the heterogeneity of the consumer. Uh, and so you and me, in the example I was giving before, are different individuals with different uh, desired uh, loan amounts. Right? And so uh, price discrimination allows targeting of prices, but also of products to these two different type of consumers. And as a result, of this targeting, also the consumer benefits from this targeting, not exclusively the seller. So, uh, monetary policy perspective, will the authorities have a target? So, you know, in this unconventional monetary policy, they want certain amount of liquidity to show up in the market. 
if the lenders go off and design products that are sort of different from what the Fed's expectations are, would that create a problem from a policy perspective? I mean, I think your question is a, uh, is an insightful question in the specific case that we are analyzing in our paper, I think the general idea uh, of the central bank was to expand lending. Uh, traditionally, these policies have the desired effect of expanding in particular corporate lending, so lending uh, to firms. And uh, in the case of funding for lending scheme, indeed, uh, lending to households, so mortgage lending, uh, more, more importantly, was initially allowed, but then it was excluded uh, from some of these uh, central bank uh, facilities. Uh, the idea was that uh, targeting housing markets presumably uh, could have increased house prices as well. And uh, there was a, a concern uh, that uh, increasing house prices uh, was not a desirable uh, target per se, uh, rather it was better to use this money to increase uh, corporate investment uh, and through corporate investment, uh, you know, employment, uh, GDP, rather than uh, uh, using this money uh, to boost the housing market. And asset price inflation. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. So. So, so you have a related paper, again, a working paper, Alessandro, refinancing cross-subsidies in the mortgage market. Um, you say in household finance markets, inactive households can implicitly cross-subsidize active households who promptly respond to financial incentives. Uh, we assess the magnitude and distribution of cross-subsidies in the mortgage market. So, yeah, this is very intuitive. So um, those um, households who are essentially looking for changes in the interest, go out and refinance, do all sorts of things, and the rest of the market sort of sit back. Uh, and the ones who do it are the ones who are going to benefit, but it's sort of implicitly paid by the ones who don't do anything, right? That's exactly the idea of this paper. We have very detailed data, again, from the United Kingdom that are coming uh, from the Bank of England, and we uh, try to measure exactly these cross-subsidization that you were describing. The idea is that you are, imagine two consumers like before, okay, uh, you are uh, uh, a lot more financially savvy than I am, uh, you promptly refinance, uh, whereas I'm a slow refinancer, uh, in equilibrium, uh, you are going to get uh, a lower interest rate uh, than uh, I get. And so implicitly, the fact that uh, there are these sluggish refinancers uh, in the market allows lender to offer discounts uh, to the prompt refinancers. Uh, and therefore, you are implicitly uh, cross-subsidized by me, who's slow at refinancing. Is there any policy implication here, Alessandro? I mean, can you actually, uh, given that this is happening, can you negate that somehow? Well, it's hard to do it uh, in the sense that, uh, um, you know, inter aggregate interest rates change. Uh, um, in the United Kingdom also, 
again, different from the United States, there are no 30-year uh, fixed interest rates. So the fixation period on a mortgage is usually a lot shorter. On average, is between two and five years. What, what this means is that you have a mortgage, let's say, for 30 years, but the interest rate is fixed for, let's say, two years. At the expiration of these two years, you either have to refinance to get a low interest rate. But if you are inactive, and so you do not promptly refinance, your interest rate automatically jumps up at a much higher interest rate. Uh, and as a result, there are these cross subsidies that we were describing previously. Uh, the way policy can affect market design is a very interesting type of question. Uh, and obviously, in the United States, uh, there are a lot of policies uh, that are affecting, for example, the secondary market for mortgages. And as a result of the effect on the secondary market for mortgages, uh, the effect on the primary market, the primary markets are also affected, obviously. Uh, and by which I mean, you know, all the government sponsored enterprises uh, that are operating in the secondary market for mortgages. Uh, in the UK, there are no such policies. Uh, and therefore, most of the mortgages stay on the books of the uh, lenders, of the banks. Uh, therefore, the way these lenders deal with interest rate risk uh, is very different from the way uh, the, the US mortgage market uh, deals with interest rate risk. And as a result, uh, uh, the fixation period on the mortgages is a bit different. Yeah, it's interesting. So I, I didn't know this, Alessandro. So two to five year mortgages uh, clearly means that you have to sort of roll that forward because most people won't be able to pay off the entire mortgage at the end of two years or five years. So this is a bit like adjustable rate mortgages in the in the US, right? There are some similarities, uh, but it's not exactly identical. Uh, so, but uh, I agree with you that uh, uh, here in the United Kingdom, everybody talks about fixed rate mortgages, okay, because there are variable rate mortgages that adjust, let's say, every month or every six months, depending on the benchmark rate. Uh, um, but uh, here, when people talk about fixed rate mortgages, they really mean a two-year fixed rate mortgage or a five-year fixed rate mortgage, which for the U for a U.S. audience is obviously a, uh, a short-term uh, period in which interest rates are fixed. Yeah, it's a bit like, I don't know if such products exist, but they could be some sort of a step function adjustable mortgage rate, that, you know, the mortgage rate doesn't change uh, within two years or something like that. Uh, I suspect there are products like that in the US too, potentially. Yes, they, are, uh, they have a small market share uh, because the 30-year fixed rate mortgage uh, dominates uh, the, the U.S. mortgage market, um, but obviously some of these products existed. They were actually uh, uh, reasonably popular uh, before the great financial crisis of 2008, uh, but they have lost a little bit of appeal since then. Yeah, it's a complex product for the consumer, and so there are clearly inefficiencies here, right, in terms of information, understanding, 
when they actually buy a product, do they really understand all the implications? Um, <laughs> it's a real question, right? Absolutely. Um, and, and also they, they have a big effect uh, in the aggregate. Uh, these days when interest rates are increasing and they are increasing at a fast pace uh, by historic standards, uh, a lot of mortgages are immediately readjusted to these higher interest rates here in the UK. Uh, therefore, affordability is becoming a first order issue uh, for many uh, for many borrowers. Whereas obviously the 30 year fixed rate uh, mortgage in the United States may have <clears throat> some inconvenient uh, side effects that perhaps uh, in the current interest rate environment, it limits mobility. Uh, but if you are staying in your existing uh, house, uh, the affordability is unchanged exactly because interest rates are fixed. Uh, so, so the Bank of England, uh, if I'm speculating here, right, um, Alessandro, so uh, in the US, let's say there's a higher percentage of fixed uh, fixed um, rate mortgages, 30-year long-term mortgages. They don't exist in the UK, which means that the the Bank of England has higher control over the economy. Does, in other words, if they change the interest rate, it's going to affect the economy very, very quickly, right? Everybody's Absolutely. interest rate is going to jump very quickly. Absolutely. Uh, so um, some papers, uh, some academic papers document that uh, the extent to which the mortgages in a specific country are variable rate or fixed rate affects the transmission of monetary policy uh, to consumption, to household consumption, uh, exactly through the uh, household budget. Uh, and so if your interest rate goes up, uh, your expenditure on your mortgage uh, immediately increases. As a result, uh, your consumption has to adjust uh, to still satisfy uh, the budget right. constraint. So is it easier to engineer a soft landing in, in such a situation? Well, you're asking a, a tough question. <laughs> uh, so um, I leave it to people who are more uh, experienced in these type of questions uh, than me. I've always worked on the microeconomics of uh, mortgages and so on. Uh, but as you say, uh, certainly I became interested in these type of topics exactly because of their aggregate importance. And I, I hope that my research uh, exploring exactly the microeconomic adjustment of households and lenders can help uh, to understand these more macro questions, such as the one that you are asking. Yeah, you have another interesting paper here. Um, dynamics of expenditures on durable goods, the role of new product quality. Uh, you, you say that we study the role of new product quality for the dynamics of durable goods expenditures around the Great Recession. On US new car markets during 2004-2012, combining data on transaction prices with detailed information about vehicles' technical characteristics. During the recession, a reallocation of expenditures away from high quality new models accounts for a significant decline 
in the dispersion of expenditures. So that is very intuitive. Um, people don't go out and buy new cars in a recession. They're worried about their jobs. They're worried about other things. Uh, and so you tend to see sort of the used car market really poor car at that point, right? Absolutely. So uh, we put together some rich data to try to understand exactly the adjustment uh, that households uh, make when they are purchasing their car um, during a, a, a period of a recessionary period, such as the 2008 recession. Uh, this is actually a follow-up paper on a previous paper uh, that uh, my co-author and I have on on on, the, on a similar topic. And so uh, the paper that you were mentioning exactly uh, tries to understand uh, first how households expenditure adjust, and second, whether there is any supply side response. And in that paper, we document actually that car manufacturers delay the introduction of some expensive models in the United States, exactly because aggregate demand for cars is lower, in particular <clears throat> is lower uh, the demand for expensive vehicles, uh, therefore, uh, there is no incentive uh, for car manufacturers to launch new expensive models because uh, the consumers are not going to buy them. Uh, and so we do, uh, we show that manufacturers delay the introduction of new expensive models. Yeah, it's looking at um, the, you, you sort of look at the different empirical patterns and you have charts here, dynamics of new vehicle expenditures, number of transactions go down dramatically, average transaction price also goes down because demand is down. Uh, maybe the manufacturers have to provide higher incentives to move the inventory. Um, also, the standard deviation of prices go down. So what's the, what, what, what is the insight there? The insight is exactly that uh, demand goes down more for expensive vehicles relative to, let's say, uh, uh, average vehicles. Okay, or and therefore, uh, let's say the higher percentiles of the distribution of expenditures uh, <clears throat> uh, decline more relative to, say, the median or the lower percentiles of the expenditure distribution. As a result, the dispersion drops during the recession, exactly because people don't buy uh, the most expensive cars uh, in particular. And and how does quality fit into this, uh, these decisions? Exactly. So we, we if you think that more expensive vehicles have a higher quality, which uh, in the car market presumably is a reasonable, uh, uh, is a reasonable thing to assume, uh, then we do show that um, manufacturers uh, are less likely to introduce higher quality vehicles, so the most expensive ones. But also we do it a composition of technology and we do see uh, that uh, technological progress uh, during those years uh, pr uh, progresses at a slower pace. Uh, by which we mean, you know, your car presumably now is getting increasingly sophisticated, you know, it has a nice computer in it that does lots of different things, 
uh, driving it is a lot easier than it used to be, let's say 20 years ago and so on. All these are uh, measures of technological process, progress applied to, the, to your car. And we just see that this technological progress uh, doesn't uh, move as fast uh, during the 2008 recession. So the new models that are introduced, exactly for the reasons that I was mentioning uh, before, there is lower demand for those, and therefore there are lower incentives for manufacturer to upgrade uh, uh, these models with the new technological features. Yeah, so from a manufacturer's perspective, then, um, you, so it's not just pricing, it's really sort of product redesign they have to engage in. <laughs> in the middle of a recession, right? Absolutely. Uh, they are launching fewer uh, new models, and the models that they are launching uh, are not on the same trajectory of uh, technological improvements uh, relative to the trajectory to the trend uh, they had uh, before the uh, recession. Before the recession, obviously, uh, well, uh, there was a big boom in the United States, but from 2007, 2008, we do see that the, uh, there are fewer uh, expensive vehicles uh, launched, uh, but also uh, that the vehicles, the new vehicles that are introduced uh, do not have many new features, uh, uh, obviously compared uh, to the trend uh, at which these new features were introduced before the recession. Are these patterns sort of reasonably stable? Um, what I mean is, are they predictable? So I, I'm thinking, you know, in terms of manufacturers' uh, design problem, um, can they optimize the, the product they, they need to bring out in a recession by using these patterns? Well, uh, I mean, um... Nobody likes <laughs> to be in a recession, obviously, uh, but it's a way also for the manufacturer to reduce some of their cost. Okay, so in a period in which you have uh, lower demand, uh, if you bring uh, and you redesign many new vehicles, it's going to be expensive, and presumably also what the paper shows is that uh, it's not the right time for manufacturers to do these type of expenses. Uh, and so they can uh, just delay uh, some of these uh, introduction and some of these new product redesign. The uh, used car market dynamic would be quite interesting, right? Especially if you have more frequent recessions, the new cars are going to compete with potentially more advanced used cars. <laughs> and then the consumer has to decide which way to go. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've studied uh, throughout my career, uh, I've studied uh, the US the used car market uh, quite extensively because I think it's a very interesting market. Uh, there are lots of different issues, uh, issues of liquidity of the secondary market, the role of dealers in uh, uh, providing uh, liquidity to the market as well as uh, giving, uh, certifying some vehicles and therefore reducing some information asymmetries or reducing uh, transaction costs uh, relative to uh, a transaction between two consumers. So there are lots of interesting issues. And uh, as you are alluding, there is the very interesting question of the substitution between the new car and the used car. And so uh, as used cars 
become more and more durable, uh, they are becoming better and better substitutes uh, for new cars. And the only way in which manufacturers presumably uh, can reduce uh, the substitutability coming from the secondary market is by constantly upgrading new cars. And so <clears throat> they can make used cars obsolete by making new cars better and better. Right. So, so durability um, also fits into the quality question, right? So, but uh, when you buy a new car, you don't have a good assessment of the durability question. So, so how, how, how does it all sort of fit into the decision process? I mean, many consumers who buy a new car uh, keep it for a short, reasonably short period relative to the uh, useful lifetime of a car. So in the US, more or less cars, let's approximate it and just to make it simpler. Let's assume that cars last ab about 15 years, okay? Uh, but if you look at the, there are lots of cars that trade right after three years. Uh, so uh, a lot of those are uh, cars that come off lease. So that when the initial lease expires and so the consumer just replace them, but many consumers who buy regularly new car buy them every three, four years. Okay, so that's the first uh, ownership spell <laughs> of, a, of a car. And then there is uh, traditionally a lower income consumer that buys this three-year-old car and keeps it for about five years. So it goes from a, a three-year-old car to an eight-year-old car. And then uh, there's the market for quite old cars of so from eight to 10, and usually those are uh, then scrapped uh, at 15, when they become 15 year old. Uh, so you, a, a car basically has three, four owners, uh, if not more. Uh, and so in the previous paper, we looked exactly at these, uh, what we call quality ladder, uh, the car is uh, high quality when it's new, then it uh, depreciates. Uh, uh, and so there is a, a lower income consumer who uh, drives this car, and then there is an even lower income consumer who drives it uh, until uh, it scraps it. So the, if a large percentage of the buyers of new cars get rid of them in three to four years as the warranty runs out, what incentive does a manufacturer have to create durable cars? Because they don't really benefit from the secondary market transactions, right? Well, presumably uh, the consumer is willing to pay more for a car that is more durable because of the resale value. Uh, so, for example, I'm sure you know, uh, if you compare Asian cars versus U.S., uh, so American cars, Asian cars uh, retain their value a lot more than American cars. And so many consumers who buy new Asian cars also take into account that when they are gonna sell it in three, four years, these cars are gonna retain uh, their value more than American cars. And so- The sort of residual value, the, the residual value goes into that, that decision. So a manufacturer that makes highly durable, high quality cars, would want them to lease them and buy them back, right? Is is would that be more dominant choice? 
uh, you're asking a question that in economics has been studied extensively. What is the optimal uh, selling strategy of a durable good producer? And it turns out that you're absolutely right uh, that in many cases it would be optimal for a manufacturer to lease uh, these cars um, exactly because it has a little bit more control over the secondary market for these cars. Whereas um, uh, if you are selling the car, uh, you are essentially selling uh, both, you know, the use of a car for a few years as well as uh, on the resale value uh, that uh, emerges at the expiration of this usage period. Okay, whereas if you lease them, you may have a little bit more control over the use and uh, uh, the resale value at the expiration of the usage period. Yeah, so uh, a manufacturer who doesn't lease but sells um, shows a little bit of information to the consumer about quality and durability potentially, <laughs> uh, because most of the lease cars that I see, at least, they are you know premium cars. You know the the Mercedes, the BMWs, the you know the the premium Asian um, cars, uh, and I don't see a lot of mid-level cars being leased. So that 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 sort of fits into the story, right? Uh, you're absolutely right that uh, higher um, you know higher quality cars tend to be leased uh, more frequently than lower quality cars, uh, but the trend uh, that has been growing in recent uh, years is the fact that now there are used cars that are also available for lease, which is something that is uh, a new, a little bit of a new phenomenon. Uh, but you're absolutely right that um, uh, higher end cars uh, tend to be leased more frequently. And it turns out that when they are coming off lease, also these cars sell at a premium. So consumers uh, seem to appreciate the fact that they are coming off lease rather than buying a uh, broadly equivalent car that has been just uh, re uh, that, that the seller is selling rather than coming off lease. Yeah, I just want to get your perspective. I'm related to your research, Alessandro. So, you know, we have autonomous cars coming up. Uh, there are, I, I remember reading a couple of years ago that car manufacturers are moving toward subscription model. So they don't right. want to sell you the car, they don't want to lease you a car, they want to just give you some time slots uh, where you need to use the product. Uh, do you think the market will uh, go toward that? I'm not sure how uh, large uh, it will be, uh, the demand for um, these type of products. Uh, I live in a big city and I am pretty sure that in uh, for urban consumers, this uh, subscription model is a reasonable model. If you live in a more rural uh, area, ownership seems to be just uh, uh, having uh, greater advantages. But uh, I live in a city, I don't need the car <clears throat> very frequently. Um, so uh, these, uh, let's say, sharing uh, type of arrangements uh, might work reasonably well. What you are describing is a, a combination uh, between the sharing and, you know, is a more permanent uh, type of sharing uh, that is prevalent, uh, I think, for consumers whose uh, whose needs might change uh, and they want frequently also, you know, a new car and so on. So it might uh, uh, 
um, there may be a niche market for which uh, the subscription model works reasonably well. More generally, and, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I would say that if you look at uh, profits of car manufacturers or revenues of car manufacturers, an increasing amount of revenue is coming uh, not from the direct sale of the car, but rather from servicing the car. And so the yeah. subscription model uh, seemed to fit into that uh, revenue uh, proposition uh, for, uh, for car manufacturers in which they want to have uh, a larger flow uh, of money from the consumer. And they could start making cars that will never die because they now have an incentive to make the highest durable, highest quality product because they own it forever. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting uh, uh, market uh, to see how it's going to evolve, as you say, with the elite electric vehicles, autonomous cars. Uh, so if you think about it, uh, after uh, your house, uh, for most consumers, uh, the car is the second largest uh, asset that they own uh, in terms of value. Uh, so it's certainly an important market, uh, and so it's going to be quite interesting to see uh, how it will evolve uh, in future years. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Alessandro. Thanks so much for spending time with me. No, thank you so much for your questions. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.